Have you ever had somebody come to you and tell you something or you, you read something or, or someone came with some piece of information for you and you listen to what they say and you completely disagree with that and you're like, think again. Yeah, that, that happens certainly from, from time to time. I had that circumstance this last week. I actually read, it was a study that had come out, a study about hugging. That's right, a study about hugging. I read it, I don't know, I, had, I found some interest in it. And so I read, it was actually about how long is the perfect hug. And so they did this study. How long would you say a, a perfect hug was? Just put some kind of number in your mind. Well, psychologists tell us through this study that they'd done an extensive study that the perfect hug between friends is between five and 10 seconds. Between five and 10 seconds. And every guy listening right now is, think again. <laughs> it's like, that's an eternity, or it sounds like an eternity, right? Every hug between a guy, between two guys, is exactly the same. It's you approach, right hand high, left hand low, embrace, two slaps on the back, release, and that's it. It's like three seconds maximum is all that it takes. We can do it in one second if we feel motivated to do so, right? That's what it is. Five to 10 seconds sounds like an eternity. And the study actually did say that once you get to 10 seconds, there is a plateau of pleasantness. Yeah, I think, that, I think that happens a whole lot sooner than that as do most of the rest of the guys. But I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I mean, they could be right. So I thought we could test that out ourselves. So I want you all to stand up and turn to somebody. No, we're not gonna do that. I know if I asked you to do that, you'd be like, think again, right? Yeah, so there are all kinds of things in life where, you know, it seems appropriate that we might think again, and we're going to encounter that today as we dig into our text. We're calling this message just simply, think again. Think again. And we're gonna see some scenarios where that very much is the case. We're gonna look at that. Actually, we get started today in Mark chapter two. If you haven't already, please go ahead and open up those scripture journals, your Bible to Mark chapter two. And we're gonna be starting in verse 18. We're gonna dip into chapter three today as well. So um, we got a lot of good stuff to, to be taking a look at. Welcome also to those of you who are in the classic venue or on the moon campus. It is good to be digging into this with one another. Now, the natural progression for every one of us when it comes to establishing life's, life's course is that we do a few things. One is we have some experiences that influence us. On top of that, we also have instruction that we've received, we have education that we have received, and all of that works together, swirls in this big pot to sort of develop some of our opinions on things. And opinions turn into convictions. And what studies show is that by the time we're in our 20s or maybe 30s, that the convictions that we have then are the ones that we're gonna take to the grave. Decades later, they're the ones that we're going to take to the grave. Now, sometimes that's a good thing. I mean, if you, if you fall into Jesus or into truth or into faith or faithfulness in those early days, that can really set you up well for all of life. But sometimes the things that we develop convictions out of aren't all healthy. Sometimes they're even harmful. Sometimes the things that we develop convictions out of are things that were good at the start, it had a good genesis, a good origin, but it has kind of morphed. It's kind of, kind of tweaked in the way that we live it out and it turned a different corner. Even though we went into it with the purest of motives and it looked awesome, it became something different pretty quickly perhaps and then that's the conviction that we ended up living out. And that's the sort of thing that we see happening in the text that is in front of us today. We're gonna look at some people who very much are in that category. If it started out good, 
but it turned into something else. Now, as I said, we have this inbred bias that we have as individuals, that the things that we have established as convictions early are the things that we're just going to carry on. And the truth is, you brought those convictions with you today. You brought them in. We all did. But what that leads us to is if that's true, is that you've already made up your mind about today. You've already made up your mind about what this sermon's going to be. Not about necessarily, but what your takeaway is going to be. You're already settled. So what I want to ask you to do is I want you to ask you to, to release that for a moment. To open up your mind to what it is that God might be desiring to say to you. We know that God is speaking. It's a matter of whether or not we're listening. So I'm just asking you to sort of unhinge from that conviction necessarily that might be good, it might be something that could be tweaked a little bit, and just listen and embrace and open your mind to what God might be saying to you today. Nobody's going to know. And if at the end of our time, you're like, you know what, those things that I came in with, those are the same things I'm picking up and walking out with, then good for you. That's fine. But it might be that God wants to say something to you today that you have an inclination to really not listen to. So let's open our minds to what God would have in store. We're going to be talking about thinking again, this, this urgency that should settle on us to ask ourselves, what is it that you want to say to me in this moment, God, and open our hearts to going whatever direction that would take us. There's some necessity to do this, and I want to point out a few of those as we go along. So first of all, we need to think again because of the trap of tradition. There are a lot of traditions that are very popular that all of us experience probably every year, or most of us do. And we just came through one of those. There's like chocolate at, at Valentine's Day. There's apple pie at 4th of July. There are sugar cookies at Christmas. There's buffalo chicken dip for the Super Bowl. It's like we can turn any food into a tradition in America. And we pretty much have, right? And so there are those things. Now, there are also some things that you kind of look at their traditions and you kind of maybe look a little bit sideways at them, right? I got to thinking about that a little bit. I'm kind of wondering, why do we kill and eat 46 million turkeys every Thanksgiving and we pardon one? Ever think about that? And to me, it's not so much, why do we only pardon one? It's why do we pardon one? <laughs> you know, why, why are we pardoning turkeys? So that's one tradition that's a little bit different. Or another one, um, in West Virginia, why is it an annual tradition that they have a roadkill cook-off every year? Oh, never mind, it's West Virginia, I understand. Um, that one does make sense, I guess. So, but if you're from West Virginia, please don't get offended by all of that because in Pennsylvania, we celebrate a groundhog, right? And so it, it kind of goes around, kind of comes around, and a lot of traditions, some of them kind of get a bad rap a little bit, and I understand that, but the truth of the matter is that pretty much every tradition that is out there had its origin in something that was fun or something that was good or something that was desirable. That's where they all get their start pretty much. That's why they're worth repeating. But sometimes traditions outlive their value. 
Sometimes traditions outlive their purpose. And sometimes those traditions actually completely turn from what they were intended to be at the start to something very, very different by the end. They can actually be harmful where it was intended to be something that would be helpful. And that's what we see here in this text. Such was the case in some of the traditions of Jesus' day. The Old Testament law had been given so that people would know, so the people of Israel would know what God's intention was for them, how they could live morally and how they could live in obedience to God and to his desires. It started off very good. Unfortunately, it morphed from that. It's not that the law changed, it's that the interpretation of what the law said or what the law needed to say got added to again and again and again. And the more that it got perpetuated, the more it sort of fell into the pattern of how people would live and the more it became tradition until you get to the point where what is actually being lived out or being demanded of the people doesn't actually have anything to do with the law and what God ultimately Gave. In fact, that happens so much that just a little bit later in Mark, Jesus is going to say this. I'm pulling it forward because it applies here today from Mark chapter 7. He says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. That's the problem. That's the issue. He's essentially saying you need to think again. And that's exactly the problem that's happening in our text. So let's get, get into our text for today. Mark chapter 2 beginning in verse 18, it says this. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. The law of Moses demanded that there would be one day of fasting a year, just one day. It was Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. But by this point, there had been a number of other fasts that had been layered on top of that that said, these are things that you must do. In fact, the Pharisees said you actually had to fast every Monday and every Thursday. They're saying twice a week you need to fast. Now, on the surface, that sounds like, well, that might be a good thing. I mean, if fasting is good, it points you to God or it helps you to focus on God, then the more that you do it, the better off you're going to be, which sounds great, unless the reason that you're doing the fasting isn't to honor God, it's not to develop your relationship with God, but instead to sort of prop yourself up, to make you look good before God, to look good before others. And if the fasting is really all about you, and that's what it was for these Pharisees. In fact, that's why they put on their sackcloth and rub their ashes on their faces, is so that everybody would know that they're fasting so that the glory could go to them. That's what's happening here. Now, this day that we just read about was one of those extra days of fasting. And so Jesus' disciples aren't fasting. They don't need to. And the Pharisees are wondering, well, why aren't you? Why aren't you following after all of these traditions? And in reply, Jesus uses this illustration of the marriage feast. Now, in ancient Israel, the marriage was, the wedding, the marriage, that whole thing was a huge deal. I mean, we make a big deal about it. We spend a lot of money on it in America, but it was nothing like this. It was not just bring everybody together, have the ceremony, have your cookie table, do the cha-cha slide, and then wish the bride and groom well, right? It wasn't just that. In ancient Israel, what they would do is it would be a feast that would last for about a week. It would last for about a week. Imagine that. 
And so that's the context that he is talking about right here. And everybody who is there celebrating together was dismissed essentially for, from all of their normal responsibilities, the normal things that they would have to do in the course of their life. And one of those the things that they were released from is this obligation to fast. Jesus says it would actually be pretty ridiculous to go to a wedding feast and to fast. It'd kind of be like me inviting you to a Super Bowl party and you say, yeah, I'd love to come. What should I bring? How about some loaded nachos? And I'm like, no, 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 don't bring loaded nachos. In fact, don't bring anything to eat because we're going to fast for the Super Bowl. Yeah, that's exactly how you'd respond. You'd be like, that's stupid. You'd be like, honey, we need to find a different party. You're not coming, right? And you shouldn't come because it's not a time for fasting. It's a time for feasting. And so Jesus brings this up as an illustration about himself because Jesus is the bridegroom. That's what he's talking about here. It's not just somebody else's wedding. He's identifying the fact he's the bridegroom and the church is the bride. And so while the bride has the opportunity to spend time with the bridegroom, lean into that, enjoy it, celebrate it, lift it up, make the absolute most of it. That's what you ought to do. It's a day of feasting, not fasting. Unfortunately, the Pharisees couldn't see that. They couldn't see that or else they wouldn't see it one way or the other. What they could see is their traditions. Now, ironically, even their traditions, even though they were way off base, if you look back at how they or why they actually got started, they got started out of some fairly good motives from a desire to please God. That's what stood behind it. They figured, well, if fasting once a year is good then fasting twice a year must be better. And if fasting twice a year is better, then fasting twice a week must be best. And so that's what they start to legislate on the people and say, this is the way that you need to live this out. So by the time Jesus comes on the scene, extra fasting was a well-established tradition. It was expected. In fact, it was so established that they didn't even see a need anymore, essentially, for God. Jesus is standing right there before them, and they're like, yeah, could you get out of the way? We need to see our checklist. Yep, got that, got that, got that. And so they were so settled and their traditions in living those out, they didn't even need the real thing anymore because they'd so fooled themselves with living out the traditions as being the real thing. And the truth is, that's the trap of tradition, and we can fall in the same trap. Tradition will give you enough to do that you believe you're close to God, even if you might not even know Him. Because you can do tradition apart from relationship. You can do the checklist of, yeah, I didn't eat that day. That must be fasting. That must make me close to God. Check. I feel good. I don't need to stress about whether or not I'm developing any kind of personal relationship with Jesus or with God because I have myself settled because I'm doing all, that's the trap and it sucks us in and it's important that we would do and I invite you to do a bit of introspection on what exactly is it that you're celebrating? What is it that you are living out? Is it possible that you've gotten trapped in, in tradition and just going through some motions and you're considering that to be the very thing that has you close to God instead of the relationship that he invites you to have day in and day out? If you are struggling through this trap of tradition, you need to think again because that's not where it's found. And that's not what Jesus is after. That's not what a relationship looks like. We can all get trapped there. That's where we get started. 
As we go on, there's some more. We also need to think again because of the limitations of expectations. I'll explain what that means. The limitations of expectations. As Mark goes on, he gives us another scenario where there's another conflict that's going to happen between Jesus and these religious leaders. And as we get into it, we're going to see a couple of dangers that come from the limitations of expectations. And the first of those is this, that it will distort priorities. It'll distort priorities. Beginning here in verse 23, let's pick it up there. It says this. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Jesus answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The fourth commandment told the people of God to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. If you read what it says there in Exodus 20, it says that they were to abstain from doing work. And what were they supposed to do? They were supposed to rest, and they were supposed to worship God. That's what it's for. But the question then arises, well, what exactly does it look like to rest? And what does it mean to not work? And the Pharisees thought, man, there's way too much wiggle room in that to figure that out for yourself. So in order to take away all of the necessity of thinking for yourself, or processing through your own relationship with God, essentially, they said, let's just lay down the law, the tradition for what it's going to be, the expectation for what would be the responsibility for everybody and how to live out the fourth commandment. And so they came up with all these minute regulations that they added to the law that started to make it, or definitely made it, a burden rather than the blessing that it was intended to be. So, for instance, they came up with this rule that it was okay for you on the Sabbath. This is all about the Sabbath. That's the problem is these things are happening then. It's okay to spit on a rock on the Sabbath. Okay, go around, spit all you want on, on a rock. But you could not spit on the ground because the ground is dusty in, in, in soil. So if you spit on the ground... It's going to, your saliva mixed with that, it's going to make mud. And mud is used to make mortar. And mortar is used for building. And building is work, so spitting on the ground is wrong. That's, what it, that's the sort of minute detail. That's the sort of ridiculousness they brought to the understanding of the law. So it's not surprising that when they see Jesus' disciples out picking heads of grain on the Sabbath, that, well, that's no good. That's working. You're like harvesting. On this. That's horrible for you to do. How could you ever think of doing? And they're outraged about the fact that Jesus' disciples are picking these heads of grain. Now, the problem wasn't, and the thing that they were upset about isn't that they were out in some you know, poor farmer's field and they're picking his heads of grain and they're stealing from the farm. That's not it at all because this was allowed. This was a practice in ancient Israel. You could just walk through and you could pick and, and assist yourself and your of course, people were dealing with, with excessive hunger and those sorts of, so it was fine. It was, according to the law, said, go ahead and do that. The problem is that this is on the Sabbath. And they're saying this is something that just should not be done. So they confront Jesus about his disciples' actions. And as they do so, Jesus takes them back to a story that they would have known very, very well 
They would have read it many, many times. They knew what is our Old Testament. We can find it in 1 Samuel 21. You want some extra credit reading? That'd be a great place to go later on. You can read about this story. But to summarize it, each week there were 12 loaves that were placed in the tabernacle. They represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And it would be there. It was called the showbread or the bread of the presence. And after it was time to switch it out, the bread that they took out was to be consumed, but only by the priests. They were the only one allowed to. So here comes David and his men, and they are in need. They are starving, and they need some sustenance. So Abiathar, the priest, he takes the bread, and he gives it to David to eat and shares it with his friends. And God doesn't get mad, doesn't smite David for what is happening here. He knew, Abiathar knew, that the needs were very intense and that it was more important to meet the needs than it was to observe some ceremonial regulations. Now, note that Jesus is not just condoning disobedience here. That's not the point of what he is saying. He's not talking about breaking the law just out of personal convenience. No, he's emphasizing discernment and compassion when it comes to enforcing ceremonial law, especially when those things have been added to by human amendments over and over and over again. People's needs are more important than technicality. So Jesus points out to the Pharisees exactly what their perspective ought to be in relationship to the Sabbath in verse 27, where it says, he says to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. See, the Pharisees had the tail wagging the dog saying that the Sabbath is all important and everything ought to bow in deference to the Sabbath. But no, God gave that for the benefit of mankind, that it might bless them instead of become just a burden to them. And the Pharisees got it turned around with the, with the expectation that they had put out there, with the trap of tradition that we've already been seeing. Jesus says, no, you've got it all wrong. We need to look at and care for the needs of those who are, we need to keep our priority straight, essentially, is what he is saying. They had distorted priorities. It's one of the limitations of self-focused expectation. Then he goes on and he gives us another one as well. Another problem with that, and that is that it will harden hearts. It'll harden hearts. We read about it as we turn the page now into chapter 3. Beginning in verse 1, here's what it says. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. See, this is what the Pharisees are doing. They're kind of tracking around, sneaking around behind Jesus, watching what he's going to do, seeing if they can catch him in something. Why do you think they were out in the country at this field when he and his disciples were there? They're hanging around watching what's Jesus going to do so that they might get him. It was the Sabbath. And here's another circumstance where they're trying to do the same thing. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, he's kind of moving in on them here. He's, he's challenging him. He's getting in their face. He says to them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Obviously, this is a trap that they have set for Jesus because they figure he's not going to be able to see the extent of this guy's need and not do something about it. It's kind of a bit of a compliment that they're paying to him, that they know that he's that compassionate, 
that they're gonna be able to catch him in this because he won't leave that need unmet. And I'm impressed with Jesus that he doesn't just kind of take the guy and go over in a corner and, you know, heal his hand. He doesn't say, hey, come and meet me after dark out where the Spotlight 88 used to be. (laughs) And then I'll do something for your hand. He doesn't say any of that. He actually brings him right out into the middle of everything so that everybody could see. And right there, he heals the man's shriveled hand just to demonstrate that the need is far more important than these man-made regulations. He's just coming after the Pharisees yet again to point out their hypocrisy. And Jesus is pointing out their evil. He's pointing out their hypocrisy, and they hate him for it. And Mark says, actually the earliest of any gospel writer, that they started to look for a way to kill Jesus. That's how far this has gone. That's how deeply entrenched in their own pride that they are, in their own traditions. They're trapped by the tradition so that they couldn't see forward. (laughs) Now, it's easy to look at the actions of these Pharisees, look at their attitudes and think, man, I am so glad I don't have their problem. I'm so glad I could never fall into that trap. But the truth is that we can, right? Because we like to make rules Also, we do. And you know why we do? It's because it's easier. It's easier to live by tradition than it is to live by relationship. There's something comfortable about reducing Christianity to a list of do's and don'ts because at least you know where you stand. And so you can look at the things that you're doing and you can take some comfort in that. But unfortunately, you never have to exercise wisdom You never have to to wrestle through those circumstances. You know the ones that are so hard to figure out, what should I really do in this situation? No, I got a rule for that. And I'm sorry that I'm not going to be able to help you. I'm sorry that you're stuck and you're going to have to go hungry because I can't help you because my rule tells me I can't. And so we don't have to wrestle through those difficulties or, or do I enter into this relationship with this person? Do I speak to this person who has a lifestyle that's really different than mine is? Or do I hide myself behind my rule and say, well, I'm good to go, and and we feel that we're good to go, and we feel that God is looking down with favor when really we're walking the opposite direction of what he's calling us to go. It's a trap of tradition. It's these limitations of expectations that we would put out there because it hardens hearts. But we justify it because we have a tradition to settle behind. This is the Pharisees' problem. They're convinced that they were so right when they're really (coughs) so wrong. So Jesus exposes their distorted priorities and their hard hearts. He exposed the fact that they needed to think again. And this is their moment. This is their opportunity. If they just would have been willing to humble themselves, if they just would have been willing to set aside their pride They could have become genuine followers. This is a moment for them. But their pride is so strong and so great that they were not willing to humble themselves at all. And as a result, they end up in opposition instead of opportunity. And you know what? This is our moment too. This is our moment too. The same choice before the Pharisees is the one before us. We're really not that different. 
We think we are, but we're really not. Alexander Solzhenitsyn sort of got to the center of that. Here's what he wrote. He wrote, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. We have the ability to go either direction. And we need to wrestle with that decision every time it comes up, which is every day. You're not over on some side of good that insists that you're going to make the right choice every single time. We need to wrestle through it. That's what he's saying. And when our pride gets bruised or the work of applying wisdom is too hard or time-consuming, we retreat to something simpler. We retreat to something that's more comfortable and further out of step with God. So Jesus is saying, you need to think again because if you don't, you're going to end up with distorted priorities. You're going to end up with a hard heart. And then there's one more thing that he tells us here, essentially, that we need to do in order to think again. We need to do so also, lastly, because of the urgency of the new. Jesus tucked a clear statement about all of this back in chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. We kind of skipped over it when we went through, but this is, this is an application for this whole section that we're looking at here together. Kind of sticks it right there in the middle. Here's what it says, verse 21 of chapter 2. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. In Bible times, wine was not kept in bottles like it is today. It was kept in wineskins. Some of you know this. It's kept in wineskins. But once a wineskin was used, it would become inflexible. It would lose its elasticity. It would become very brittle. And so if you took new wine then and you poured it into that old wineskin, the new wine is still fermenting, it's giving off gases, and so it would burst the wineskin. And so you'd lose all of the wine, you'd lose the wineskin. And so the key was to always and only put new wine into new wineskins. It was still able to stretch and grow, essentially. And Jesus' point is that like old wineskins, these Pharisees had become inflexible and too rigid to ever accept Jesus, who's always about doing something new and causing growth and change and, and movement forward. They're like, we don't have to move forward. We have what we want. We have our tradition and so they've got no interest. They become the masters of the old, the old garment and in the old skins. That's who they were. They were self-appointed guardians. They were stuck. They're kind of like the guy who went out and bought a new radio. He brought it home. He set it up. He tuned it into the local country music station, and he pulled off all the knobs. Now, that's wrong on so many levels, not the least of which is that he tuned it to country music station, right? But it's bad for other reasons as well. It's because he's like, he's essentially saying, I already know everything I want to hear, and I only want to hear more of the same. 
So don't confuse me with anything else. And that's what the Pharisees are doing. They've pulled all of the knobs off of anything that Jesus would have to say. They didn't want to listen because they'd already made up their mind, which is a big problem because our God is a God who is always doing something new, always doing something new. In order for a true follower of Jesus, we must never get set in our ways because it makes us become spiritually brittle and we can't entertain the new and adventurous things that God would lead us into, the new things that he desires to do in us. Now, this is essential on multiple levels. One of those is for us as a church. We have so much to look back on. We have so much to celebrate about what God has done in our midst in the past. And we should rejoice in that. Absolutely. But there's also so much more that he wants to do. He didn't lead us into whatever promise or blessing that we experience for a time so that we might just enshrine that as the way and the only method that we'd ever do anything, even though it worked well in those moments. There's always something new that he is doing. That's true for us as a church. We need to be open and we need to be pursuing, discovering what God has in store for us and trying new things and taking new risks and going new places because God is a God of the new and that's awesome. Not only is that true of us as a church, that's also true of you as an individual. God desires to do new things there as well. For some of us, maybe you, your spiritual walk looks pretty similar today as to what it did a year ago. Maybe as what it looked like five years ago. Maybe 10 years ago or even more. It's so easy to get established in a pattern and just stay there. We talked about that, how that's the inbred bias that we all have. Your participation might look about the same. Your service around here might look about the same. Your weekly routine might look about the same. Your prayer life might look about the same. Your giving might look about the same. Your level of joy might look to be about the same as what it's been for a really long time. Now, you didn't intend for it to be that way. You didn't intend to be here five years later, the same as you were five years ago. It just kind of happened. Now, it's not that God isn't pouring something new out in your direction. Truth is, you, if you're a believer in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit of God who's present and who's continuing to pour new wine into your life. But it could be that your wineskin has burst. And so the more that he pours in, the more that is just lost. You don't have anything that is containing it anymore, anything that is capturing it so that you might be able to enjoy it and be blessed by it and move into what God has in store for you. And this could very well be why you're, you're struggling to experience fullness or excitement or, or the newness that God has in store. It's why your spiritual life perhaps has become a bit dull, if you're really honest, a bit predictable. And all this new talk, well, where's that at? Could very well be that it's, that it's nowhere because you're not capturing the new wine that God is pouring in your direction. So how do you do that? 
Well, it kind of dovetails back with what we've been talking about for a couple of weeks here. A couple of weeks ago, I gave you a challenge. Do you remember? The CPR prayer. CPR prayer, CPR. Yes, it is definitely about the heart, the spiritual heart. It's an acronym. You can see what it stands for. It stands first to confess. And this is an area where we can begin. We can look at how is it we've been living. Have I been humbling myself before God to experience and to walk toward the new things that he has in store for me? Or have I been kind of pushing him away, kind of living out my tradition, thinking that, that this is fostering favor with God when really all it's doing is, is making sure that I stay separated from him? To confess that perspective, to, to confess the fact that you're, you're stuck in the same place that you were five years ago, or maybe it's a worse place than you were five years ago. Confess that you've been allowing pride to drive you instead of humility. To pray praise, thanking God for the fact that he has a desire to do new things, that that's the sort of God that he is, that he wants you to, to learn and grow and develop and, and move ahead than to request as well. To request that God would give you the insight to understand what's going on. To request that God would help you to get a new wineskin, to be renewed and to be refreshed, to be transformed, so that what God is pouring in your direction is something that you'd be able to capture and something you'd be able to live off of and enjoy and experience. It's my prayer for you, and I pray that it's your prayer for you also. If you're tired of it just kind of being what it's been, know that the opportunity is there from this moment to experience so much more. But in order to do so, if you've been stuck, you need to think again. You need to consider where you are and what has left you there and ask yourself how you move forward. CPR, make it what you're praying. Remember we did this as a 30-day challenge? I hope that many of you are like two weeks along in that now. If you haven't quite made it there, then just start today. Commit yourself to the next 30 days that it's a commitment that you'd be able to live out. Because as you do so, it's going to put you in the place where you're receiving from God the new wine that he has in store for you. I pray that's where we would all walk so that we might experience the fullness and the excitement and the adventure of what God has in store. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for what we can learn from those who didn't exactly respond the way that you called them to. For these Pharisees that we look at and we kind of say, man, those were some nasty dudes. They really, really had it wrong. I'm glad that I don't have the temptation to go their direction, but yet we do. We can fall into that trap just as easily as they did, and some of us have. In fact, at times and in ways, all of us have. So Lord, we come to confess today, to confess that there have been times when we have chosen tradition. We've chosen that which is comfortable because it's easier. 
than processing our way through the challenges that we face day in and day out, of developing the love that can exist between us and you. And so our relationship isn't really a relationship. It's not based on love. It's based on I'm going to jump through the hoops so that I feel better about myself, and hopefully God does too. And you desire so much more than that for us. So, Lord, we submit ourselves to that. Today we confess where we've been and we request. We lay before you this desire to walk in closer fellowship, closer harmony. So, Lord, I pray. I pray for my friends here that we would experience the fullness of all that you have in store, not just kind of spinning our wheels or making things the same a year from now as they are now, but experiencing something brand new. Lord, you can do that. Fill us with the new wine of what you have intended, and may we be people that can receive that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.